0: you have little bitty uh, kids, just just know that they are not going to bother me. I know when it's your own children, sometimes it bothers you and you think everybody can hear it, but just realize that we're cool with that here as well. So Nehemiah chapter 10, I know we have some more people coming back uh, from summer break and some who are visiting us and we just want you to know how thankful we are to have you back and glad that you are here. We gather together because we believe that God's design for his people is the church. We're going to talk some about that today in, in our message, but in the book of Nehemiah we particularly have this vision that if we want to be God's people, that we can't just be a people who want to, to see what's wrong with the world. We can't just be a people of this word that sometimes used deconstruction. But we need to be able to look at what's wrong, but we also need to be a people who are able to rebuild, to renew. Some of that has to do with our own lives. Some of us have a lot of brokenness in our lives. I would say all of us do, but some of us, maybe it feels more pronounced right now. And we're looking for ways that we can get out of the ditch. We're looking for ways that we can restore and revive what God has called us to. And the book of Nehemiah gives us a vision for what it looked like for a nation to do that. The people of God, the nation of Israel. And in that, these promises come to us as followers of Jesus who came as the true Israel as the one who fulfilled all that they were meant to be for God's glory and for the good of the world. And now, through faith in Christ, we've been united into that story. We're not reading here just some ancient Near Eastern history. We're reading our family history. And the Bible calls us to learn from this so that we might live life to the full in Christ. In Nehemiah 10, this is probably one of those chapters, if you've read it before, where you might have thought... I I don't know, maybe this is one I need to skip over. But I think, again, we'll have good news from God today. We're going to begin at verse 38 of chapter 9, because that's really where uh, this chapter begins. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor. So there's the easy name, and here we go with the rest. The son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, Malkijah, Hattish, Shebaniah, Malek, Harim, Meremoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshalam, Abijah, Mijamim, Meziah, Bilgah, Shemiah. These are the priests. And the Levites. Jeshua, the son of Azaniah. Binuive, the sons of Henadad, Kodmiel, and their brothers Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalida, Peliah, Hanan, Mekah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zachar, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu. The chiefs of the people Parash, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Bunai, Asgod, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigbi, Aden, Ater, Hezekiah, Azer, Hodiah, Hashem, Biza, Harif, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Mishulam, Hazer, Meshazabel, Zadok, Jedua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Anaya, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashab, Halohesh, Pilha, Shopek, Briham, Hashabanan, Messiah, Ahiah, Hanum, Anan, Maluk, Harim, Banah, Bana. So we read this partially because we believe all of the Bible is God's word. And also because some of you might would just skip over this if you're reading your Bibles and we're going to say, we're going to read this together. We believe it's important. and And you'll see some of why soon. So verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses the servant of God and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and His rules and His statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the extraction of every debt. Verse 32. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give, a year, to give yearly a third part of the shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burn offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our fathers' houses, at times appointed year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor." And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again that you have invited us into your presence. We thank you that you are always the one waiting for us, calling to us, coming for us by your grace. And we thank you for your grace and gift of faith that's brought us here today. And we pray now as we come to your word that you would help us, Lord, to be present. Spirit, right now, would you align our bodies and our minds and our hearts to be here in this moment? Protect us from being afterwards or being before. And yet, God, may this this truth of your word affect all our past and our futures. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We haven't done this in a while, and if it feels awkward for you with a mask on, just go for it or pull it to the side. But I want to ask a question and hopefully get a little participation. So why would someone who seemingly feels great love and passion in a relationship, we'll say a romantic relationship that they're in, and has spent a great deal of time maybe in that relationship, why would they resist or not want to move into making the commitment of marriage? What do you think? It doesn't have to be about yourself, obviously. Why would people resist that? They're afraid. afraid. What are they afraid of? Afraid of commitment. Good. What else? Why would you say, "Uh, I don't know. This is going pretty well like it is right now. I don't know that I need to make the commitment. Don't want to share. Yeah, it's like that's one thing when... When I can get to choose when I want to do this, it's another thing to bring that life together totally. What else, Jonathan? Okay, so there's this fear of, of losing out on the freedom of singleness, and we might could just underline that word, losing freedom. What else? Any others? It's easier to leave when it doesn't work out. It's easier to leave when it doesn't work out. Right, we can be close, but if we, if we take this step into commitment, this covenant commitment, that if things don't work out, it's a lot messier. I mean, we all know that it's like a lot easier just to break up with somebody than have to go through like a divorce. What else? Things might change. I might not feel the same way next week, or next month, or next year, or next decade. Any others? Fear of responsibility. I'm taking on this extra responsibility. Great. Lauren? Yes. You're making a vow. It's scary. You're putting, especially when it comes to marriage, right, you're thinking this is a long time because I'm saying forever. Forever. You might think of some more but but here's two that I've heard that go along with these. One is this fear that it'll kill my love. You know like when we put when we put labels on things, when we make commitments, it kind of destroys like this organic nature. You know, you've heard people say, "Oh, enjoy it because you know once you once you get married, you know, it's not going to be that way anymore." And we, in our culture, kind of believe this story that when we make commitments, it kills kind of the fun. It takes away the thrill. It takes away the passion. There's another one, and we touched on this, is that it'll kill my freedom. I won't be able to keep my options open. Now today, we're not talking about marriage, although some applications may be made. But what we are talking about is making commitments. We're reading a chapter in the Bible that is not just this sort of flash-in-the-pan chapter, but we see again and again and again where there are these not just uppercase C covenant interactions that God has with His people, but what we might call lowercase C. That is, they make these covenant renewals to God. It's that again they say, God, we're not just going to say we love you. We're not just going to say, yes, you're our God, but we're going to actually make a commitment a commitment and commitment make a lot of us really nervous for all of the reasons we've shared regarding thinking about marriage but if we're honest in all of life and what happens is we're so tempted to let our desire this is what happens our desire never moves to devotion because it never moves to commitment we believe commitment could be a killer of desire and freedom. We live in a culture that supports this with a vengeance. Convenient passion versus committed perseverance. Of big causes, right? Everybody wants to get on social media. Everybody wants to go ruin their family get-together by doing big talks about this political issue, this justice issue, and all may be well and good, but when it looks like actually committing your life to making a real change, we're like, I don't know about that. I'm cool with talking about stuff. I'm cool with being passionate about things. But, you know, making a commitment that actually discomforts me, costs me, and kind of puts me on the hook, eh, I don't know if I'm up for that. Because guess what? When this news cycle rolls around next week, I want to be able to show the whole world that I'm as equally concerned about that. And so what I'll just do is jump from this idea to this idea to this passion to this passion. But when you look at your life, there's nothing that's really changed. It can be true when it comes to doctrine. Because you can have people who get, men. they get so fired up about this doctrinal truth or this issue And they just want to make sure everybody else gets it. And if they don't get it, maybe they're not even, as as somebody said recently, a real true believer. But when you look at their life, nothing's changed. It's just a lot of talk. It's a lot of noise. It's a lot of passion. But there's no real, if you were to look in somebody's schedule, their checkbook, their discipline... Same can be true with mission. It's, you know, you and this will date me a little. I don't know. Some of you younger, you know, you read David Platt, you read Radical, you read this stuff, and it's like, man, the world is we're so consumeristic, we're so everything's so compromised in our culture. And and you want to go around pointing fingers and criticizing the church and all of this stuff. And yeah, it all sounds good, but at the end of the day, is there a commitment to any real change in your life? We also live in a culture, again, of loud deconstruction, but very little faithful reconstruction. A culture of me versus we. Somebody touched on this, but what we want to do is make sure we keep our options open. Would you be at this? Yeah, I might be there. Would you do this? Yeah, I might. But why? Because we know at any second something that seems more fun, something that seems more attractive, we want want to keep our options open. We've been told that's the good life. This is the water that we're drinking if we don't realize it. A culture of consumeristic, individualistic, pietistic passion versus committed, communal, devotion, action, discipleship. This is nothing new, this war, though. As we look back into the garden, some of us may not realize this, but you, if you look at even the way these first two chapters are, are or starting in the Bible, this idea of covenant commitment is right there from the beginning because God is entering into this relationship with humanity and He's saying, This is all yours, but this is what I want from you. I want you to commit not to do this. Commit to this, commit not to do this. And, and what does the enemy come along and whisper in your ear? Humans, that's commitments are power plays. Commitments are this God wanting to push, wanting to corner you and constrain you and to repress the freedom that you have. It's manipulative. You'll not really die. You'll be like God. And that's what we all want to be and that's why we don't want to make commitments. We want to say, I'll do what I want when I want, and I'm not going to bind myself to anything. And that's what at the heart of what a commitment, a covenantal commitment is all about. It's about binding. It's about commitment. And the Bible is full of this. Some even say that covenant is one of the, the organizing themes of the whole scriptures. Church history is full of the people of God also making these lowercase c covenants through times of reformation, through times of renewal. Because a revival, a true revival, is not people having a back-slapping, aisle-running good old time on a Monday through a Thursday once a year in the spring or in the fall. What happens is it's when people's hearts are changed and now they go and make new commitments that they live out when nobody's watching. It's Jesus calling to the rich young ruler when he has this great desire. And he's like, "That's passion is great, but now I want you to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And what does he do? Well, I don't know about that. i got to keep my options open. It's Peter saying, Jesus saying, Peter, do you love me? And he's like, you know I love you. And it's Jesus saying, Will feed my sheep. And give your life for my people. There's no, there's no separation in the kingdom of Christ between desire and devotion. True desire that brings real change and rebuilding in our lives is always matched with commitment. And commitments take our infatuated, pious desires and turn them into intentional. Practical devotion. How do they do this? We have a few ways today, and we'll do the best with the time that we have. There's so much here. First thing is they have to be powered by grace. We're to verse, chapter 9, verse 38. If you click back to there. We did chapter 9 all last week, and if this is one thing that is at the heartbeat of the culture of our church, is when we talk about things, we're talking about being motivated by grace, not guilt. This is very important. The covenant commitment that they're going to, to, to lead in flows out of this. Those who know their Hebrew Bibles even see this is chapter verse 1 chapter 10. So, what's going on here? Is it's because of all this. What was all this? If you wasn't here last week. It's just chapter 9 is the machine gun of God's grace. The waterfall of God's grace. It's just falling on a people who fell over and over again. But every time they cry out to God, God doesn't step back with His arms crossed. He comes running to them in love and says, we can do it again. God's gracious covenantal faithfulness is going to be what motivates their repentant confession, but also what motivates in this chapter their renewed commitment. They are not coming to a covenant commitment saying, if we just work harder, God will be gracious. No, He is gracious. That's why we're going to commit. This is the logic of the gospel that we've got to get flipped in our hearts. They are not committing to earn the smile of God. They are committing because they have the smile of God. They've celebrated the day of atonement during this season. They've seen with their eyes their sins placed upon this animal. One that is sacrificed showing their penalty has been paid and one that has been sent out into the desert showing that all they owe has been taken away. They are not trying to win God's favor by this commitment. They are making this commitment because they have God's favor. This is essential to powering our commitments. If we try to power our commitments based on guilt or the earning of God's love and favor, then we are going to be super discouraged, super disappointed, and super defeated. One thing that I hate to do is going to mow my yard and my stuff doesn't work. I don't know about anybody in here that's mowed yards or did things, but it's like nine times out of ten. You want to go weed eat, and the thing won't crank. You want to go mow, and the mower breaks a belt, etc. Or maybe it's just old man stuff. But one thing that's true that I think some some of us in here may know better than others is that if you don't put the right gas in your weed eater, guess what? It's not going to work. Like if you try to put – if you don't mix the stuff – and you put it in your weed eater, it's not going to run. And it actually might not only run, but if you don't take care of that issue in time, it will destroy your weed eater. The same is true for our intentions and our commitments to God. If you are not putting the right gas in the tank to drive your commitments to reality, it is going to break down and it may even be destroyed. If you try to say, I'm making this commitment, and you pour the gas of guilt into the engine, you pour the gas of shame into the engine, you pour the gas of fear or intimidation into the engine, then guess what? You're going to break down. And this is how so many people, particularly the religious south, try to fuel and power their commitments to God. I'm going to earn God's favor. I'm going to receive belonging from this group of Christians. I'm going to finally do something that shows that I'm worth something. But it's never enough. And you break down the only way that our commitments will last and our commitments will persevere is if they're powered by the grace of God. This is why so many people break down when it comes to sometimes even doctrinal issues, or when it comes to missional issues. Is they're going to go out and change the world? They're going to love people. They're going to love the poor. They're going to love the truth. But really, what it's being powered by is this. It's, it's, it's happening because of guilt. I'm going to go out here and show, prove myself. I'm going to go out here and earn God's approval. I'm going to go out here and earn these people's belonging. And their their approval. So what happens when that doesn't work? You know what people do? They quit. They give up on their commitments. It was all about them. Well, obviously, I'm going to just keep messing up and have to keep needing God's grace. That doesn't make me feel, that I don't feel strong. And so I quit. Guess what? These people who I was trying to impress, they're actually not so impressive after all. So, who cares what they think? I quit. Guess what? I go to love people on mission, and I thought they would throw a party for me because I was being so nice. And guess what? They don't seem to really care. Or nobody actually seems to be changing. So why should I keep trying? All of these reveal that your commitment is not being powered by grace. It's being powered by an idol. It's being powered by guilt. It may be being powered even by some brokenness in your story that you're trying to use your action and your commitment to cover, but only the grace of God can do that. Grace motivation is the only hope we have to power our commitments toward the glory of God. That God loves me before I do anything. God accepts me before I do anything. Who I am comes before I do. And all that I am is rooted in who Jesus is and what he's done. It's not about me. It's about him. It's not only what he does through me. It starts with what he's done in me. So important. How will we keep persevere in commitments that move beyond desire to devotion. It has to be powered by grace. But the second thing is, is they have to be personal. So verses 1 through 29, we're reading all these names probably wrongly. Some of you could correct me. Pronouncing some I's e's and some I's eyes and doing the best I can. But what we see in these 29 verses is that people are putting their names on the line. Beginning with Nehemiah, this is so important because he's no distant leader. Some of you may have been a part of church cultures where there's this sort of leaders say, do as I say, not as I do. But in the the economy of the kingdom, true leaders are practitioners. True leaders are not saying, you know, you guys do the stuff and I'll sit back here and hide and just kind of give you some directions. And then in verses two through twenty two through eight, the priests, verses nine through twenty-seven, the Levites. Then in verse twenty-eight, it says, the rest of the people, that is, everyone who has separated themselves and declared themselves to be God's people, who are choosing to, to 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 say, This is who I am. The people of God are my primary identity. And all who can understand the word of the Lord, they all personally commit or recommit generally to the Lord's law, we see. But then we're going to see in the rest of the text, they're also committing to some specific applications of what that looks like for them as the people of God in their particular context, time, and history. But the thing we want to underline here is they make a personal decision. So as a church, we're always trying to really make sure we steer people away from, from the, the cult of individualism in our culture, but we don't want to overstate the facts that at the beginning of all of our commitments to Christ, to His people, and to His mission in this world, it starts with a personal commitment. I took piano lessons, and I quit. You know why? It was my mom's commitment, not mine. Some of you have been around with people in schools, it could be girls or guys. I remember this in high school especially. And it seemed like whoever they were dating or whoever friend group they were in, that would become their passion. So if you're dating somebody who loves horses, all of a sudden you become cowboy or cowgirl person. If you're dating somebody who rides motorcycles, you now become motorcycle person, girl, person. It's just sports, whatever, fill in the blank. I become friends with this group of people, and they like this, so now that's what I love. Posters on the wall come down, right? They like the Clippers, Clippers posters. They like the Lakers, Lakers posters. Whatever, like it's just whoever I'm in a relationship with defines what I'm passionate about. The only problem is, is that never lasts because it's never personal. If your commitment isn't personal, it won't last. Some of you may need to do a real hard look in the mirror. Why are you here today? Why are you following Jesus? Is it because your parents did? Is your commitment to Jesus somebody else's commitment that you're just kind of doing? Your friends. The fact you live in this culture that celebrates people who follow Jesus. We live in a unique place and a unique time in history. It may not always be that way. But if you get baptized, people are going to applaud you. A lot of people in this room. If you get baptized in the book of Acts, you might get your head cut off. It has to be personal. Commitments will not last if you're just following out somebody else's commitment. Non-personal commitments are like this, that everybody else was doing it. Well, they... I remember when I was growing up, a couple times somebody got, a, a person would get baptized in a church and then all of a sudden 20 other people would. And some of that was genuine, but I know from as direct experience as possible, a lot of it was just like, well, all my friends are doing it, so I guess I ought to do it. Being a part of a missional community. Well, I don't know that I really want to do this, but it feels odd if I don't do it. I'll, I'll maybe just feel judged or left out. Being a part of a church. So many commitments are made. i would afraid if I didn't do it, I wouldn't be accepted or I wouldn't be along. I'm afraid if I didn't do it, I wouldn't. I'd be in trouble. Maybe somebody would get mad at me. Some of us make commitments because we want our idols served. I'll commit to that because I'll get some control. I'll commit to that. I'll get some approval. I'll commit to that. I'll get some pleasure. I'll commit to that. I'll be able to perform. And one big way you can tell that your commitment's not really personally from your heart is when you're only doing it based on what you can get out of it. You're not saying, I'm here to serve, not to be served. You're saying, I'm here to serve so that I will be served. You think of membership or commitments to things more like joining the YMCA. What are the benefits you're offering? You don't think of it like joining an army or a kingdom where it's like we're here together. Personal commitment says, I'm following Jesus, and it doesn't matter if anybody else does or not. That old song, I have decided to follow Jesus, one of those verses just sticks out to me as I think about this. Though none go with me, still I will follow. If my parents don't follow Jesus anymore, I am. That's what I want my kids to say. I am. If nobody else wants to love and serve the poor, I am. If nobody else wants to get in the mess of the community and kingdom of God known as the church, I am. I'm not talking about me. I'm saying like this is what a personal commitment looks like. I a big reason why I'm standing here and not somewhere else to tell you a little bit about my story is is, is I'm saying if nobody else wants to do this, I'm not doing it because it's part of a church plan, because it's what the church does. I'm not living where I'm at. I'm not reading my Bible. I'm not praying. I'm not seeking to make disciples, because that's what we do. No, I don't, I'm not trying to be mean or frank here, but if none of y'all show up next week, by the grace of God, I'm just going to keep on doing it. And I won't do it perfectly, but this is is what it takes. So many of us have wondered, why didn't my commitment really take? Why didn't I really stick with it? It's like, was I making that commitment? You know, Jesus powers us to do this in profound ways. One of the things the Apostle Paul says that that underlines this is in Galatians 2.20. He says, Jesus gave his life for me. Now, there is some hyper-individualism that is in our, our world, and we talk about it often. We're going to come against it next, rule in the next point. But do you, do you realize Jesus knows your name? Do you realize that Jesus didn't just come and give his life for a blob of, of no-name people? He knows you, your name, fill in the blank. He died for you, your name, fill in the blank. He is now interceding before the Father for you, your name, fill in the blank. Do you realize Jesus has made a personal decision to love and care and see you to the finish? And do you realize when all the world came against him and everyone betrayed him and he was left alone, he didn't waver in his commitment for you? This is amazing. Jesus didn't go to the cross because it was, well, I don't want to disappoint the Father and the Spirit. Jesus didn't go to the cross because, you know, the Father had His arm twisted behind His back. No, in perfect unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus said, yes, I want to do this. I love them. It's going to cost. It's going to be lonely. It's going to be messy. It's going to be hard. But I'm not just going to talk about it. I'm going to commit it. So this leads us into the next thing. What what makes our desires move from mere ideas into commitments? Well, at first, to keep them, it's got to be powered by grace. It's got to come from a personal decision. But it also, though, has to be public. We could say public by community accountability. This is what we're seeing in verse 29. Notice they join with their brothers. They enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. This is a very communal thing. There's the personal, then there's the communal. They're committing to the people of God. We can notice some things about this. It's it's very public. If you've read and been tracking with us, you can go back and look. This is an assembly. They're, They're not sitting off in a corner by themselves saying, I commit to follow God's people. Now, why would that be easier to do? Because if nobody knows it, then I can, again, I keep my options open. If these people get messy, I can opt out. You want to talk about messy people? Read the history of Israel. (laughs) They know this is going to get messy. But they make a public commitment. They're saying to one another, we're all in. We're all in together. And how do we see that this is all in? Accountability curse and an oath if we don't keep this we're going to call call a curse down upon ourselves we're making an oath this is high accountability public communal that's biblical what i mean biblical god-centered is notice they're not committing to some man-made traditions they're committing to the word of the lord They're committing to it as His people, to the Lord our Lord. They need each other to do it. God loves individuals, but He loves individuals as they come to make up a part of His people. At this point in redemptive history, that was the people of God known as the nation of Israel. But now we know this reality through the fulfillment of Christ as the church. I don't like to run. I need to. But I've I've been known to quit. A few years ago, I went and bought an expensive pair of running shoes because I thought that would force me to start running. (laughs) I don't know what kind of logic that is, but that was my logic. That was not to go too far back on our first point that was the wrong kind of thing to power that commitment (laughs) but if i look back on my life and i think when i have done a lot of running in my life and i think when were the times that i actually did all that running you know what it's when i had other people running with me it's when i was a part of sports teams it's when that i knew that my running was a part of a bigger running a part of a bigger vision to stop running would not just hurt me, it would hurt them. For them to stop would have hurt me, and I often would run faster than normal because I had someone to pace myself by. If I would go run by myself, you know, I might do pretty good, but if I had somebody that's a little faster than me, running a little ahead, is I could just kind of stay up. Now some of you will say, well, I'm actually a total opposite. That's one of the reasons I love to run is because I don't want to be by myself. And I can get some technology to help me with that. And that's that's great. But when it comes to the people of God and the purposes of God, God teaches us that we are called to run a race. It's one of the primary metaphors in the New Testament for the life of a disciple. But he's told us we're not to run this race alone. In Hebrews chapter 12, it's we've got our eyes on Jesus, right? It's that personal decision. I'm keeping my eyes on him. I'm running this race. But then he says, and remember, you're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And then if you continue to read in chapter 12, which we don't always do. We just like the uh, refrigerator magnet verse. If you continue to read in Hebrews chapter 12, it says you do this as a part of the church. And if you go back a couple chapters in Hebrews chapter 10, this is the verse that all preachers like to use to guilt people, right? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's not so that we can get a head count and figure out how many people came. It's so that you endure to the end because we need encouragement. We need one another to run the race. And many of us in here will, will agree to that. But where the history of redemption pushes us, and I would even argue, not i got a lot of time to do it this morning, is when we say, yes, yes, I need other people, and now we've got to say, now I'm going to commit to them. I'm not just going to date them, I'm going to commit to them. I know that analogy breaks down to a certain degree in certain ways. But if we really want to run the race with other people committed, we've got to make a commitment. We've got to say, I'm with you. Ride or die. But some of us rightfully run from words like covenant and commitment. Public. Accountability. Because they have been so abused in the life of the church. These words, communal, public, accountable, have been wielded as power moves. Sadly, some churches have commitments they have people sign that basically include non disclosure statements. That's not what we're talking about. If you don't know what a non-disclosure statement is, it's basically like saying, if you want to be a part of this church, you need, you need to sign this, and it basically says, when you leave, you can't say anything bad. about. It. Just weird legal stuff. The church can be weird. They can be used to manipulate people, to control people, to cancel people in cultish ways. But on the other side of the coin, many of us don't want to make any type of covenantal, serious commitment to any other believers because we know we rightfully feel all those things when we share at the beginning, like, man, that's that's going to be messy to get out of. That's like some real serious stuff. And I just don't know. Accountability? Man, am I setting myself up for getting judged, for getting humiliated, for getting shamed, for getting guilted? I don't know. So we can choose a DIY discipleship. And we can say, sure, there's other believers I'll run into at work, or other believers I'll run into in the neighborhood, or other believers that... I may run into and in what particular church I choose to go to on any particular Sunday morning. But I'm going to keep my options open. I just want you to know a lot of us resonate with that here. When we talk about being a church to the broken, burnout, and bored, when we think burnout, we're thinking also about people who have been burnt by the church. But commitments without community and community without commitments will never never lead us to experiencing deep relationships. Sometimes those are formal and sometimes they're informal. I'm not talking about one way or the other. I'm just saying you give your heart, you give yourself to a group of people and you say when this gets messy, we're going to keep following Jesus together. It may not mean we're always together. There are good and right reasons for people to change churches and to do things. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying this is going to be about more than me. This is saying I need help. I need brothers and sisters in Christ. I need the church. God says that I need it. I need to put myself in relationships where people can hold me accountable. Again, this isn't forcing anything. It's willing, it's voluntary, it's personal. It's powered by grace. And yes, you're going to have Pharisees who mess it up. But Jesus had a lot of Pharisees around him. And he didn't say, I'm going to destroy the church because it's just going to be filled with judgmental people. He said, no, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He gives the keys of the kingdom to the church. And yes, you'll have judgmental people. And Jesus says we're not doing the whole curse and oath thing in the New Covenant. But he does say we're going to have these processes of accountability. Matthew 18. That people voluntarily and willingly step into and say, Hey, if you see me straying as a sheep, Jesus says, I I want you to put yourself in a community that will come after you. Like this. And yes, you have people who are proud... And are competing and downright crazy in the church. Go read 1 Corinthians. It's nothing new. But in that same book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says the body of Christ needs one another to function as members. They need an eye committed to a foot, they need a hand committed to an ear. And yes, it's messy. But we're not trying to call people to more than Jesus called them to, but we're also not trying to call people to less. If you want to think about messy, look at Jesus' 12 disciples. That was a mess. That is not the way any church planner or any CEO of organization would say, this is how I want to choose my staff. And Jesus gives us this picture of what it means to be the people of God. But when it's centered on him, we can make commitments. Students, don't buy the stereotype of your generation. There's a lot of people out there in the world that would like to label you college students and and under, or maybe even some who are older who are like, they just don't make commitments. That's not who you are in Christ. That's not who we we see you are as a church. We see you as the spirit-filled children of God who in this next season of our culture is going to go out and not just say what's wrong with the world, but make commitments to follow Jesus and live it out. That's not just generationally, that's true for all of us. This leads us to this last point. Way over time, but it's, they they got to be practical. So powered by grace, personal by decision, public by community accountability, And then lastly, practical in an everyday context. In these verses 30 through 39, we see that that they make some specific things. So they're generally committed to the whole Word of God, right? And a lot of us are cool with that type of vague generality. Yes, I'm following Jesus and I'm committed to His Word. But uh, these commitments that God gives us these patterns for never stop there. They always have some specific applications. Pertinent to our time, place, and history. And here, here are a few. The first one was they were to remain a separate and distinct people. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land. Uh, this, isn't, this isn't an argument like it's been so bogusly used, sadly, in our southern culture against interracial marriage. I mean, I don't even know how this pa- that passed, right? I mean, anybody that's read the story of Boaz and Ruth, <laughs> anybody that knows about... <laughs> Moses and Zipporah, right? I mean, it's just crazy. This is talking about is that our relationships, though, are going to remain distinct because our primary relationships, particularly those marriage or dating or the the closest people, are going to be the people of God. We're a church that our name is Matthew's Table. It's all about. Our tables need to be filled with unbelievers. And if they're not filled with unbelievers and those far from God, we've missed the mission. We're, We're to be in the world. But Jesus also says we're not to be of the world. And what this is saying to the people of God is they're making a commitment to say, God, you are Lord of our relationships. It would have been very advantageous for them to intermarry financially, culturally, in a lot of ways. But they say we're not going to do this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, if you think this is just an old covenant thing, Paul repeats this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? This is not legalism. This is the way to life. That God's people, we we don't marry. We don't date. We don't give ourselves primarily to first order relationships to those who are not living in faithfulness to Christ. Not so that we can pull ourselves out from the world, but so that we can go strongly into the world. Secondly, it talks about they will keep this weekly Sabbath and this seventh year Sabbath holy under the directives of the Lord. What is this saying as we move forward? Their time and their property is committed as the Lord's. So if we're already not feeling a little uncomfortable over what I just said, Let's, let's raise it up a little more, is, I mean, come on, God. The nations don't take off Sunday, a day a week. They're going to get ahead of us. I got stuff that's got to get done. And then our property, right? So this is, it's crazy. Every seven years, this, this year of where they, they let the land rest, we could do a whole kind of talk here that touches on environmental stuff. But like there's this respect for the land. The land's going to rest. Wait a minute. Time out. We could be making more money. And then we're going to release people from their debts? Whoa. Because it's this commitment that everything is the Lord's. And we today do not find ourselves under these Sabbath laws. Paul says in Colossians 2 that we're not to judge or align our lives to those who to these issues of Sabbath and new moons and festivals, exactly the things that we see here. But what the New Testament does speak of through Jesus is we've received this Sabbath rest in Christ. And so what Jesus does is He never lowers the standard from the Old Covenant. We forget this. It's actually raised because now what was, it, what was given to just this one particular act now is in some ways finding its practical fulfillment in all of our lives, that every day we are to live from the rest that we have in Christ. That every day we're to see everything that I have my home, my property, my finances, my calendar, it's the Lord's. And then the last thing with the majority of these verses given to you is they will support the ministry of temple worship financially as a priority, sacrificially, and ultimately as a worship unto God. The verse ends, our chapter ends, we will not neglect the house of our God. As Jesus comes onto the scene, he makes it very clear that everything that has ever been known about the temple is now finding its fulfillment in him. That worshiping God is not about a place, it's not about a program, it's not about a pastor, it's not about a personality. It's about union with Christ. But now when you look in the mirror, you see the temple. There's that individual aspect in the New Testament. And there's the corporate aspect. When you look around this room and you see these people, you see the temple of God. There's commitments to be made personally, when you look in the mirror, what commitments am I going to make to not neglect that this body, this life, is for the worship of the Lord? Not generally, but you you may need to go home. I want to make some commitments. This isn't legalism. This is you saying, because I already have God's favor and I already have His acceptance, what am I going to commit to Him? It's looking around the room and it's saying, what commitments am I going to make to the people? The missional community. The fight club. It's a whole church. Because this is the temple of the Lord. It's believing that Jesus died for the church. He rose and He gives us the Spirit. And now we follow Him. Need to get to the Lord's table and rest and taste in that grace, but just to bring it together, I, you know, I can say that I want to get in shape. Or I can go join Ralph's gym, <laughs> right? That's a, that's a commitment, right? I can get a workout plan. I can say that I want to disciple my children. Or I can go make a personal discipleship development plan for each of them and begin to execute it. I can say that I love the poor or I can look at my calendar and see how I'm going to reorient my lives to show up and love them. To make us even a little more nervous maybe, I can say that I want to pursue racial reconciliation by social media posts or I can actually start making friends and hearing stories. Others can say I want to fight abortion by arguing about elections and Supreme Court nominees or I can start mentoring and supporting young women or of any age in crisis situations and go tomorrow and start the foster and adopt adoption process. I can say I want to love the poor by criticizing the church or the government by how I dress and what I post, or I can start building a deep hospitality into my life. I can say I want to get close to God by talking about how I'm not all the time Or I can sit down and make a commitment, get some accountability to show being with Him and communion and word and prayer is more important to me than the meals that I'll eat this week. I can say I want to be the church by always whining about what's wrong with the church or I commit to actually being the church with the church. The good news for us all is Jesus has been perfect in all these ways. He's the power of our commitments, but He calls us to step into them. So if you'd bow your heads, close your eyes, we're about to come to the Lord's table. And I'm just going to introduce this in this way today, kind of uniquely to our weekly experiences. When we hear the call to commitment, we get nervous. But our call to commitment begins with Jesus' commitment to us. It's the only thing that'll make it work. And this bread and this cup that we're about to circle around and partake of is all about covenant commitment. Jesus says, This is the new covenant in my blood. That's why He wants us to do it. It's why we do it every week here. It's why we're willing to stick around a little bit. Jesus is saying, I'm committed to you. I love you. I've given myself for you. I didn't opt out when it got messy, when it got hard, when it took sacrifice. And what you need to hear today is he didn't do that so he can hold that over your head and guilt you the rest of your life. He did it because he loves you. And he wants to invite you into a life of commitment to him. That will give you freedom. So I'm going to pray. And then I want us to separate around these tables. And those of us who are followers of Jesus. To take the bread and the cup. And to rejoice in his commitment to us. The Lord's table is not a funeral for Jesus. He's risen. The Lord's table is an opportunity for us to confess in the hope of grace. And encourage one another with his love. So let's pray and we'll go to the table. Father we thank you for your commitment to us, for your covenantal faithfulness in Christ that we now partake of in bread and cup around his table, in whose name we pray.